Good morning. Good morning. We're going to be reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. How are you guys? Good. If you're new, either in the room or at home, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. I'm glad that you chose to be with us. My oldest daughter, Naya, is obsessed with this game on her tablet called Minecraft. How many of you in the room are uh, willing to admit that you play Minecraft? Anyone? There are a couple. Okay. Adults and kids alike, it seems. Okay. I, I don't understand the game. I don't know what the purpose of the game is. All I know is that our daughter, if we let her, would play the game for hours upon hours upon hours. And she talks about it, whether we let her or not, for hours upon hours upon hours. She can talk about it forever. The guy who invented the game, his name is Marcus Person, he invented the game from scratch in 2009, and five years later, he sold it to Microsoft at the ripe old age of 34 Forget this, $2.5 billion. Now, I'm not good at numbers, so I have a hard time understanding what a billion means. Like, I know it's more than a million. I just don't know how much more. So someone explained it to me in a really helpful way one time, and I'll explain it to you this way because I think it is actually really helpful. So if money were time, one million seconds would be the equivalent of 12 days. One million seconds is 12 days. One billion seconds would be 31 years. So the difference between 12 days and 31 years is the difference between a million and a billion. So he sells the game for $2.5 billion. He immediately spends 70 million of it, which is like a 20 spot, basically, of 2.5 billion, to buy a mansion in Beverly Hills. Not long after he uh, has this newfound wealth, he tweets this. We'll put it on the screen. He says, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Here's what he's saying. I've got it all. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, and it doesn't satisfy. 
You may or may not be familiar with the name Leonard Wolf. Wolf was a British author and political theorist who devoted his entire life to writing on important issues of his day. He wrote more than 20 books on the topics of literature, politics, economics. He also founded a group of thinkers, writers, and philosophers called the Bloomsbury Group, which was a really influential group of leaders in London during the first half of the 20th century. At the end of his life, Wolf wrote these words. He said, I can see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill would be exactly the same as, as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees, writing books, and memoranda. I have, therefore, to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have, in a long life, ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Here's what he's saying. I worked hard, really hard. I sat on committees. I did seemingly important things. I wrote about things that matter. And at the end of the day, I realized, man, I should have just played ping pong. It would have been a better use of my time. Now, maybe you aren't into computer games like Minecraft, and maybe you don't care about British political theory, so let me see if I can, in the words of the Apostle Paul, be all things to all people, with yet one more example. Justin Bieber has a song uh, from last year, and the song was called Lonely, and in the song, he's reflecting on his career and his fame, and he says this, what if you had it all, but nobody to call? Maybe then you know me, because I've had everything, but no one's listening, and that's just lonely. I am so lonely. Again, what's he saying? The money, the fame, the record deals, it has meant nothing. He is surrounded by adoring fans constantly, and he is still lonely. Now, I could probably keep going like this all day, just quoting celebrity after celebrity, influencer after influencer, rich person after rich person, explaining how it's all futility. I could point out how none of the fame or money or success or accolades matter in the end because it's meaningless. But that would be really depressing to spend our morning like that. So I'm not going to do it. However, Solomon, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is going to do it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, while you're turning there, let me say this. Last week, we did an intro to the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast because it's the foundation for where we're headed in this series. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, all these words will be on the screen. Verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, stop there. Think back to last week. We don't know who is writing the book of Ecclesiastes. We have no way of knowing who actually wrote the book. But who is this preacher in the Hebrew, the Koheleth, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem? It's Solomon. It's my view that the preacher, whose voice we are going to hear for the majority of the book, is King Solomon. King Solomon, who was the wisest man in the world. King Solomon, who was the wealthiest man in the world. King Solomon, who had seen everything, tasted everything, deprived himself of no pleasure on earth. Let's see what King Solomon, this preacher, has to say to us today. Verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, the word here for vanity, we talked about this last week. In some of your Bibles, it may say meaningless. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Hevel, it's meaningless. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. That's what life is. It's hevel. Verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
It's a rhetorical question, of course, and the answer is nothing. You gain nothing from your toil. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, the preacher says, people live and people die and the earth just keeps on spinning. He continues his depressing analogy, and in verse 5, he gives us three different examples, all from nature, to prove his thesis here. He's going to point to the sun, the wind, and the sea to prove his point. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So he says, consider the sun. The sun rises and sets. It rises and sets. It rises and sets. And it has been doing so since the beginning of time. And it will continue to do so. And you will die and be long forgotten. And the sun is still going to rise and still going to set. It's the same sun that rose and set on the day that Cain killed Abel. It's the same sun that rose and set for 40 years while Moses led the people of God through the desert. It's the same sun that rose and set on the day that our Lord was crucified. And it will keep rising and setting until you are long forgotten. The passage reminds me of a Pink Floyd song called Time. It goes like this. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Sun never changes, never. It'll keep rising and keep setting until you die. Verse six, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. In other words, the wind just blows around and around. There's a lot of commotion, but nothing ever changes. Verse seven, the sea All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Every year I go to Cannon Beach and teach at a little Bible college there called Ecola Bible College. And when we make it to this part of the book of Ecclesiastes, I take the students on a field trip. We always leave the classroom, we walk down the street, and we go to that part of Cannon Beach where Ecola Creek runs into the Pacific Ocean. And I make them spread out to find some solitude, and I give them 30 minutes to just read through Ecclesiastes 1 again and again. And I tell them to pay attention to what's going on around them as they read this passage. After they've had a significant amount of time to do this, I I bring them back together. I gather them together like a mother hen. And I, as lovingly as I can, I look them in the eyes and I say, as sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, and as sure as the wind is going to blow sand across this beach, and as sure as this creek is going to run into the ocean, as sure as those things will happen tomorrow, someday you are going to die. And then I just dismiss class (laughs) and send send them on their way. It's like my favorite part of the whole week. Verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. No matter what we see, hear, taste, or experience, part of the human struggle under the sun is that nothing will ever fully satisfy us. We will always want something more. For a moment, life might seem like to satisfy us. That new car might seem to satisfy us and then it's gone. Nothing satisfies. Verse nine. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Okay, what is he getting at? He's saying that every generation thinks that they are creative and innovative, but at the end of the day, nothing is new. No matter how much we invent, 
Nothing is new. But we read that and we immediately think, well, that's not true. There's a lot of new things. Like the iPhone, that's relatively new in the story of human history. Or like social media. Jesus didn't have TikTok or Instagram or anything like that. That's new, right? Well, yes, in a sense, but that's not what the preacher is getting at. He's saying that humanity's pursuit of the good life is not new. Humanity's pursuit of meaning apart from God is not new. In the words of David Gibson in his book on Ecclesiastes, he says this, he, the preacher, doesn't mean no new things are never invented in the world, for clearly that is not true. He means there is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. In other words, our pursuit of a new is not new. It's a trick as old as humanity to search for meaning out there instead of recognizing that true meaning only comes from God. The preacher keeps going. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he says, I applied my heart to wisdom, and it was unhappy business. Here's, here's what you need to know about the preacher in order for this to make sense, especially if you're like new to the Bible. At one point in his life, and this is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3 and 4, if you want to go read it on your own time, God is pleased with Solomon. And so he shows up to Solomon. He says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon doesn't ask for more money. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for power or prestige. Instead, he asks for wisdom. For wisdom. And God goes, okay. I'll give you all the wisdom. You'll be the wisest person in the world. This is how it reads in 1 Kings chapter four. Let me read this to you. 1 Kings chapter four, verse 29 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So he's, he's so incredibly wise that people from all over the known world are coming to sit at his feet and listen to him teach. And at the end of the day, he says, it's an unhappy business. Doesn't really have any value to it. I'll look back at the text, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, or all is meaningless. It's a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, most commentators would agree that this word, crooked, it's a metaphor for sin. In other words, the, the sin that has caused the brokenness in the world cannot be made straight. The fall of humanity, the fall of humanity that we read about in Genesis devastated humanity. It wreaked havoc on each and every one of us. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says it this way. He says, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God has joined together and it joins together what God has put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back towards the formless void from which it came. And Solomon's point is this. We can't fix it. Nothing we can do in our human 
pursuit of satisfaction. Nothing we can do in our human power or ability can fix it. No amount of money or wisdom or accumulation of stuff will fix the brokenness that exists in the world. Sin has made everything crooked. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. And then I love this last line in chapter one. We'll stop here. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You guys remember uh, those old commercials? Maybe they still exist. I haven't seen one recently. Uh, the kind of public service announcements, the more you know. They're like, teach you a fact, and they're like, the more you know, or whatever. It's like that, but the opposite, according to Solomon. He goes, the more you know, the more depressing life gets. The more you learn, the more confusing life is. The more you see and experience, it's vexation. It's sorrow. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter one. So what? What do we do with this? What is the preacher trying to do in this moment? Let me just tell you right from the jump what the preacher is getting at. He is trying to bring us to our knees and help us realize how pointless life is. In a sense, and I wanna be careful here, but in a sense, the preacher is trying to make us depressed. Philip Ryken, who I will quote a ton through this series, had this to say at the end of chapter one. He says, as usual, reading Ecclesiastes quickly makes us feel even worse about life than we did before. At first, the preacher's honesty may seem refreshing, but the more we study his book, the more depressed we become. This actually means, listen to this, this actually means the writer is achieving his purpose. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, what do we do with that information? Well, I think we sit in it and we embrace what the author is trying to do. So let me give you just one super practical way to embrace what the author is trying to communicate to us this week. It's a practice that we see in the life of Jesus several times, and we've preached on it many times here at TCC. Here's the practice. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. I want you to find one hour this week of silence and solitude. Preferably out in nature, go for a walk, go for a hike, go to the coast, and to just sit and embrace what the author is saying to us, what the preacher is trying to communicate to us. Now, solitude might be new for you, so I want to talk about this just a little bit. Henry Nouwen, in The Way of the Heart, describes solitude like this. He says, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. He continues, but that is not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Thus, I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self and all of its vain glory. Solitude 
and its accompanying silence is very difficult for us to do because we don't like being alone, okay? As a people, we don't like being alone. Even if you are an introvert and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't like people, I wanna be alone, you're still on your phone, okay? We're never really alone because when we are alone, this is why we don't like it. When we are alone, we have to face that forever empty that exists in every single one of us. We have to face who we really are. There's a fascinating video clip out there by a comedian named Louis C.K. when he was on Conan, and he speaks prophetically about this idea. And I shared this story back in the Daniel series, if you were here for that series, when we did a whole sermon on silence and solitude. But it's such a helpful story. Conan asks the comedian uh, why he refuses to buy a cell phone for his daughter. So he basically says, I don't want to buy a cell phone for my daughter. And Conan says, why is that? Why don't you want to buy a cell phone? And he says this. He says, you need to build an ability to just be by yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away. Underneath your life, there is that thing, that forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you are alone. That's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting and they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars, but people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. He then tells a story about how he was driving down the highway in LA and he hears this Bruce Springsteen song come over the radio. And he felt this just surge of sadness in the moment. And he instinctively reached for his phone to just start scrolling social media or to text friends just to escape the sadness. But in that moment, he made a decision. He pulled off on the side of the road and he just sat in silence and sobbed, just wept. Then he wraps up his little monologue on Conan like this. He says, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. You just feel kind of satisfied with your products and then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. (laughs) It might be one of the best explanations of not getting a cell phone for your kids. Here's what I'm asking you to do this week as a way of applying the text. Go out in nature, go for a hike, drive to the coast, watch the sunset, sit by a creek, turn your phone off, open a paper Bible, and read Ecclesiastes 1 again and again and again, and face the forever empty that exists in every single one of us. And be frustrated with life. That's what the the preacher's trying to do. is trying to cause a frustration in us. But, and this is so important, especially, especially if you're one of those people who struggle with depression, don't sit in that moment too long, okay? Get to the frustration and then try to move beyond it because, this is so important, the primary goal of Ecclesiastes is not to make us more depressed. It's not. The primary goal of Ecclesiastes is to point us to Jesus. It's to point us to Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus himself, when speaking about the Bible, which for him was just the Old Testament, when speaking about the Bible, he says that every story ultimately points to him. It reminds me of that Sally Lloyd-Jones line where she says, every story in the Old Testament whispers his name. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is all over Ecclesiastes chapter 1 all over Ecclesiastes chapter one. Ecclesiastes one teaches us the frustration of toil in a fallen world. But the gospel of Jesus tells us that Jesus came to redeem every bit of that frustration. Ecclesiastes chapter one tells us that everything under the sun is meaningless, but it points us to a gospel that tells us there is one from beyond the sun who has come to give us purpose and meaning. 
Ecclesiastes 1 tells us about Solomon's great wisdom, and yet it points us forward to a Jesus who, according to Matthew 12, 42, is greater than Solomon, a Jesus who is a better, more wise king than Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 tells us that because of the fall of humanity, everything is now crooked, and yet it points us forward to a Jesus who willfully and joyfully stepped into this crooked world, lived a sinless, perfect life so that he could make straight what sin had twisted. Ecclesiastes chapter one teaches us that nothing is new under the sun, and yet it points us forward to a Jesus who, according to the scriptures, is making all things new. First Corinthians eleven twenty five tells us that Jesus Christ has established a new covenant of grace and forgiveness for his children. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six tells us that Christ gives us a new heart and a new spirit to dwell within us. Second Corinthians five seventeen tells us that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away; the new has come. And then in Revelation twenty four, John paints a picture for us of the new heavens and the new earth, where King Jesus will rule and reign forever. Brothers and sisters, the solution, the answer, the answer antidote to the frustration of Ecclesiastes chapter one is Jesus. He is the true wise one who has come from beyond the sun to redeem everything under the sun and to make all things new. As we close, I want to read you a short poem because I think it perfectly describes what the preacher is trying to do for us this morning. The poem is by Stephen Crane and it's called, I saw a man pursuing the horizon. It goes like this. I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It is futile, I said. You can never. You lie, he cried and ran on. Brothers and sisters, we are the ones chasing the horizon in that poem. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is chasing after us and telling us it's futile. Are we going to listen to him Or are we going to call him a liar and keep chasing after the wind? My hope for you as you sit in this reality this week is that it would stir your affections for Jesus. And that it would make you realize that apart from Christ, nothing, nothing matters. That we would as a people recognize that our only hope is in Christ In the words of Augustine, my prayer is that our hearts would be restless until they find their rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. I'm so incredibly grateful for the way your scriptures point us to your son, Jesus. God, I can vividly remember the first time my eyes were opened. And I understood that Jesus was who the scriptures teach us he is. God, I pray that you would, through your power and spirit, do that in the lives of your people here. Perhaps for someone watching at home who's hearing this for the first time, that your word, through the most unexpected book, perhaps, would comfort them and lead them to Christ. God, we love you. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.